and welcome to another episode of The Emergency Docs. I'm Dr. R. Please keep in mind that this podcast does not constitute medical advice, but is purely for the purposes of education. Today, we have a special guest who I asked to come on to the podcast to talk a bit more about what the pandemic has been like for emergency medicine physicians. We've all seen doctors and nurses talk about how difficult it's been to see and treat patients during the pandemic, but we rarely really get to hear about what it's like from a firsthand perspective. So we're releasing a new series of episodes called COVID Reflections, where we will feature some different clinicians who will tell some of their stories from the last year and discuss how their lives have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. So our guest today had a friend ask her what things have really been like in hospitals, and she was gracious enough to write a beautiful response. So I've asked her to read her response on the podcast today. So without further delay, I will introduce you to Dr. Elisa Ray, who is an attending physician and faculty at the University of California, Irvine. She attended UC Irvine as an undergraduate and went on to earn her medical degree at Tulane School of Medicine in New Orleans, and then returned to UC Irvine for residency in emergency medicine. After residency, she completed a fellowship for multimedia design, education, and technology, and she's really emphasized medical education in her career and has also been an amazing role model for me during my medical training. So welcome, Dr. Ray. Thank you so much. It's definitely exciting to be on the podcast today, and I'm really excited to to kind of talk about what things have been like being an emergency medicine physician during COVID. Thank you so much. So you've been practicing emergency medicine for about a decade now. Is that right? So I went to med school from 2008 to 2012. And I, yeah, I guess it has been a decade now. It's been about eight years. Amazing. So have you ever seen anything like what you've seen over the last year? I honestly have never seen anything like this. It's been an entirely new experience and, you know, definitely prepared for it as an emergency medicine physician. This is part of what we train for, but um, never seen anything like this before. I know I personally have had a lot of friends and family ask me if it's all made up or if the news is exaggerating. And I imagine that's a lot of the reason why you wrote such an impassioned response to uh, your friend. Yeah, completely. It's I've had the same questions. I think for a lot of people that are not in the medical field and are working from home, they're a little disconnected from the realities of the pandemic and what we're seeing in the hospital setting. For a lot of us that are working in the hospital, it's become our day to day and we um, we know very well what's happening. But if you're not in that situation, I don't think you have quite the same experience. And then of course you look at different portions of the country and each portion of the country is also having a slightly different experience with this as well. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think also as medical providers, like you said, it's our daily experience and we kind of forget over time how abnormal what we're we're going through actually is. So I hope that kind of by talking about this today, we'll be able to provide a little more in-depth perspective for people about what it's really like in the ER. Agreed completely. Unless you're there, I think sometimes it's hard to fully imagine. Okay, so could you read us your response? Yeah, of course. So I had a friend who on Facebook asked if he could ask me a couple of questions. His questions mainly were surrounding whether COVID was actually killing people or whether it was patients' other conditions. He was asking about what we're treating patients with and what we're sending them home with. 
he was asking about the numbers and if the news was misleading people or if the numbers really were what the news said it was. He felt like he was getting some misinformation and really just wanted some answers. So let me read my response that I wrote to him. Um, It's a little lengthy. That's okay. I think it was all needed. Yeah, I think it's really important that we start to get some of this information out. And I was really grateful that a friend rather than, um, you know, really kind of believing some of the information out there that might be misinformation or not really knowing what to believe actually asked someone that he felt comfortable asking. So here's my response. So I said, hey, friend, let me answer your questions. Yes, the COVID virus is killing people and it's doing it at an alarming rate. At the time when he asked this question, we had just had 4,000 deaths from COVID in a single day in the United States. I've never seen anything like this in my 11 years in clinical medicine. I included my two years as a medical student where I was in the hospital. COVID's attacking the body in multiple ways. It's attacking the lungs so people can't breathe. It's causing blood clots. In the few months of treating COVID patients, almost a year now, I've seen patients that have had strokes, who've had heart attacks, who've had blood clots in the lungs, all caused by COVID. It's causing a severe immune response in some patients as well. I've seen completely healthy patients, patients as young as 20, and then obviously the elderly die. They've had no previous medical problems, but COVID ultimately did kill them. Those with medical problems, specifically patients who are obese, have high blood pressure, have diabetes, or have some kind of immunodeficiency, they seem to be a lot more susceptible. And those with lower socioeconomic status are also seeming to be a lot more susceptible. I think it has a little bit to do with the fact that they're often living in multi-generational homes. Advanced age is also a cause in patients doing more poorly and having higher rates of death or mortality. The volume at the hospital I work up has gone up dramatically. Our hospital is full and our 50 bed emergency department, our ICU, they're all full as well. We are lucky in our emergency department to have a 20 bed observation unit um, in addition to our regular ER beds, but those were all ultimately converted over to an ICU. ICU patients were lining our pre and post-op rooms. We had shut down our operating rooms for all but the emergent cases during portions of this pandemic as well. Currently, we have two tents in front of our emergency departments that we see patients in, um, and we've opened a mobile field hospital, also a tent, that holds an additional 50 patients. Right now, beds are lining the hallways of our emergency department. In the county where I live, hospitals were previously allowed to not accept ambulance runs if we were at capacity. And at capacity can mean a lot of things. It can mean that our ORs are full, or it can mean that we just don't have beds or the resources available for a patient at a time. When an ambulance wants to come to our hospital, they call ahead. They let us know what they might be bringing us. And we used to have the option to say, we're so sorry, we can't. Please divert to another hospital that has the resources. That's no longer an option. All of our hospitals in our county um, have to take ambulance runs that head their way, whether or not we really have the resources. This leads to us seeing trauma patients in the hallways. We're admitting really only the super sick patients, the super sick COVID patients. Oftentimes that's the patients whose oxygen levels are below 90%, below 89%. We can't get it up with just a couple liters of oxygen by diesel cannula. Those patients whose blood work shows that COVID is essentially overtaking their body, harming their lungs, harming their kidneys, and those that are too weak to walk or too weak to eat or really care for themselves. 
We're continuing to admit, obviously, all of those non-COVID patients that have medical reasons or traumatic reasons or surgical reasons to stay in the hospital. Just because COVID is happening, our non-COVID emergencies haven't stopped. They continue despite the pandemic. They keep coming at similar rates. I send many COVID patients home. If we can, we arrange for them to have oxygen if they need it. We have outstanding case managers and nurses who are able to help that make that happen for them. We give good return precautions, making sure that the patients know when to come back and when things are getting severe and they'll need to be admitted to the hospital. There's been a lot of things floating around about some home remedies, things like vitamin C, zinc, vitamin D. The reality is the evidence is poor on them, but they're really unlikely to harm the patient and may have some small benefit. But things like azithromycin or a Z-Pak, which is an antibiotic, the evidence behind that is really poor. And even the hydroxychloroquine that there was some hope that it might help things in the beginning, it's been debunked in multiple studies. Ultimately, COVID is a virus. And like many viruses, it comes down to a waiting game and supportive care. You kind of have to write it out. You do symptom control with things like Tylenol, acetaminophen, ibuprofen, Motrin. And when it worsens, we provide supportive care to the patient. Supportive care is essentially when things get really bad, we give the patient oxygen. We can do small levels of oxygen through a tube in the nose all the way up to very, very high levels of oxygen where we ultimately put a tube down their throat and into their lungs to breathe for them essentially referred to as intubation and commonly patients often think of it as life support. We give patients IV fluids, we give them medications to raise their blood pressure or lower their blood pressure depending on what they need. We um, clean their blood with dialysis when their kidneys no longer function. We give them medications to support their heart as it may need it. And we make small and large adjustments with what we do for the patient, what medications we give them to help their body's physiology keep them alive. Ultimately, what it comes down to is medical experts are relying on years of medical training and experience to do what we can to support the bodies. And in the end, when a patient dies, regardless of the cause, just about every good healthcare worker will tell you that a little piece of their soul goes too. It's hard. And it really doesn't get easier. We're really not being led by these COVID numbers. They truly are that high. If a person comes into the hospital with COVID, they'll be labeled as having COVID because they have COVID. So if a person comes in with lung failure and they can't breathe because of COVID, they'll have COVID as part of their diagnosis list on their chart. If someone comes in with a broken leg to the hospital and we swab them because we're swabbing everyone so that we can keep our COVID and non-COVID patients safe, so that our staff knows which patients they need to wear a little bit more personal protective or PPE equipment with, if they don't have COVID, COVID's not written on their chart. But if they do have COVID, we will put it on their chart because they do have it. They need to be placed in a separate area so that staff can wear full COVID PPE when examining and caring for them. They may never get sicker from their COVID. Some COVID patients are doing just fine, or they may get sicker because of the COVID. Some COVID patients aren't doing great, but ultimately they have COVID and it will be placed on their chart. If they don't have COVID, it won't be placed on their chart. If they were diagnosed months previously, but no longer have any symptoms, we don't document COVID again because they likely don't currently have it. We don't know about the long-term sequelae of COVID. We're still kind of figuring that out. Post-COVID syndrome right now seems to be a very real thing, oftentimes referred to as COVID long haulers. 
Patients are recovering differently. I've seen patients who have chronic lung failure, heart failure, and stomach failure months after having COVID and supposedly recovering. We don't know what the long-term morbidity, medical problems a patient's going to have, or what the long-term mortality from COVID is going to look like, but it doesn't look like everyone's going completely back to their baseline. So there was also a question about death. Um, when we report a death, we report multiple things on the death certificate. If a patient gets shot and bleeds out, their death report is most likely going to say something like cardiopulmonary arrest, secondary to hemorrhage, bleeding out, secondary to gunshot wound or penetrating trauma, essentially meaning their heart and lungs stopped because they bled out from a gunshot wound. Even if they have COVID, that's most likely what their death certificate will report because the COVID didn't kill them and so it doesn't need to be on their death certificate. But if they had a heart attack and it's believed that that heart attack was due to COVID causing their blood to clot, then their death certificate will list COVID as part of the death. It will say something along the lines of cardiopulmonary arrest, secondary to myocardial infarction, secondary to COVID. I actually think the numbers of COVID deaths are probably a little bit higher than what's being reported. And this is my own personal take. There's things like the primary deaths. So COVID is actually causing someone to die. And I have a hunch there's a lot of those deaths that aren't getting reported because people are dying at home and no one knew that they had COVID. They may be older and in that age range where a coroner is not going to look into that case of death. And so we'll never know whether or not they had COVID. That being said, there are also what I think of as secondary COVID deaths, which is where someone doesn't have COVID, but they died kind of because this pandemic is happening. So things like maybe they didn't come to the hospital soon enough to get help. So you have a person with a urine infection and it becomes a blood infection and they don't come into the hospital because they're scared of COVID and they don't want to get COVID and they don't want to be a burden on the hospital system. But ultimately they wait too long and that blood infection, that urine infection that becomes a blood infection kind of overtakes their body. They come into the hospital, they're septic. We support them as best as we can. We give them IV antibiotics. We breathe for them, but ultimately we can't outrun that infection and they die. They won't have COVID on their death certificate because COVID didn't cause their death. Their death was caused by a urinary tract infection that became a blood infection. But when you really sit down and think about it, they delayed coming to the hospital because of COVID and fear of COVID. We're seeing a lot of patients right now that are coming in with delays in care because they're scared of getting COVID in the hospital or they're trying not to be a burden on the hospital system because they know there are other sick patients. It's really sad to see because for a lot of these patients, if they come in sooner, we could have helped them not have complications and we could have potentially for many prevented their deaths. I can say that overall, it's been a really rough year dealing with all of this. It is as bad as it seems and as bad as it's made out to be. At the time when I wrote this, I anticipated that things were going to continue to get worse. Everyone is tired. Our nurses, our techs, our environmental services, respiratory physicians, our secretaries, everyone's exhausted right now. We're seeing more patients and we're treating more sick patients than we ever have. We're flexing people to cover as much as possible. We're working more. We're working harder when we are there. It's physically and emotionally exhausting. Not to mention the fact that we're constantly seeing naysayers that call us stupid or idiots or make fun of us for our experiences. There's people that are out there that are bragging about how they aren't wearing a mask or how they're going out to eat 
or um, continuing to live their life pre-pandemic without any any care or any um, you know worry or wearing a mask to try and help things. Right now, the burnout level in medicine is very high. A lot of us refer to it as moral injury or PTSD. It's high, and I think it's going to be high after the pandemic. I'm a little concerned that we're going to see a large exodus of medical personnel when this is over because people will have had their fill and just won't be able to continue to go on. Ultimately, this was a really long response, and I hope everyone is doing well and safe. I think the other hard thing about the pandemic has been seeing all of these industries, the restaurant industry, the hairstyle industry, they're suffering too. And it's hard to know and hard to see that happen, knowing that I'm doing the best I can in the hospital, but we can't save all the industries as well. At the end of the day, it's really sad to see these businesses struggle and to see them close and die along with human lives. I was really hopeful and I still am really hopeful that when we get the vaccine rolled out, we'll be able to get everything under control and we'll hopefully be able to move back to a more normal way of life, probably masked for a little while longer, but that's okay. We can get out and we can start supporting businesses and supporting each other. That certainly will be a big thing, I think, for a lot of people. Thank you so much. Definitely. No problem. I mean, you brought up so many incredible points as you kind of went through that response. And I think it answered so many of the questions that I often get from people as well. And I think at the beginning, you made a really good point about reaching out to people you trust and people that you know are working in the medical field and rely on evidence-based research. Because I think a lot of times there can be misinformation sort of just generated on the internet. And it's really important to make sure that you're getting information from a trustworthy source. It really, really is. There's, like you said, there's a lot of information out there and It's hard to always know what exactly is good information and what's misinformation. And when I, uh, when I need something done by an expert, I go to that expert because they're the ones that live and breathe that and really truly know what they're doing. And I think it's important with this pandemic to listen to the people that are in the trenches and the people that are actively a part of combating this pandemic right now. Absolutely. And I think another thing that you brought up that I've gotten a lot of questions about is this cause of death and what we're writing on the death certificates for patients. And so I really am so glad that you kind of walked us through that and kind of what the process is like and gave us a couple of examples. Um, And I do tend to agree that there's a lot of patients that probably are dying from COVID that don't end up having that on their death certificate. I know I personally have had a couple of patients who have died before we were able to get any testing. You know, they, like you said, waited a long time to come to the hospital and had respiratory issues. And so we'll never know if COVID played a part in in their death. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to sort of talk about some of those examples and why the, the cause of death isn't necessarily always just COVID or just something else. Definitely. So there's another thing that you brought up about having all of the beds being full in the hospital and diverting ambulances and seeing patients in hallways, sitting in chairs and in beds in the hallways and taking traumas in hallways. And so I think, you know, that obviously really affects the patient experience as well as the physician experience. That's an important point to discuss a little bit just because 
it adds a lot of difficulty to seeing patients for physicians. If you're seeing a patient in a tent but need to do a private exam or um, something along those lines, the physician will then have to transport the patient to a place where they can do a private exam. And so that adds a lot of time and effort and energy in seeing these patients. So can you talk a little bit more about managing that and kind of the difficulty associated with that? Yeah, it really does. And I think one of the I think one of the big things here is the patient experience. I don't think anybody goes to a hospital and expects that they're going to sit in a waiting room chair for six hours while we see them, while we order blood tests, while we order x-rays, while we review those results, while we figure out exactly whether they're okay to go home or whether they need to stay. And I can't imagine what it's like as a patient to spend six hours sitting in a tent outside in the heat or the cold or you know, even just beautiful weather when you're not feeling well. And especially because I think oftentimes you sit there and you wait for six hours and it's hard to recognize or understand everything that's going on behind the scenes that, you know, an order goes in for your blood work and it takes a little bit for someone to acknowledge it, to get everything ready, to come down and draw your blood. That blood gets drawn. It has to get sent to the laboratory. The laboratory has to run the blood. We're now two hours into your visit. Your blood gets run. The results get uploaded to the computer system. They get flagged for me and the nurse to take a look at. We take a look at it. I decide, hey, you're a little bit dehydrated. Let me give you some fluids. I order the fluids. The fluids get given. We're now four hours into your visit. We recheck that blood test or I recheck your heart enzyme because I want to make sure your heart is stable. And so I'm checking it two or three times. And the patient sits there for six hours in a tent or six hours in a hallway bed while nurses and doctors and and techs are running by them. And it probably feels a lot like they're being ignored, even though behind the scenes, the nurse and the physician and the tech all know what's going on. And we all know what we're waiting for, for the next step. On top of that, like you said, you have someone that you're trying to get history from. And, you know, not everybody feels completely comfortable airing their medical history in front of a bunch of strangers. Some people do and have no problem with it. And some people that's a little bit more invasive. And so Obviously, we try to be as respectful as possible. We try to pull patients into private areas to have these conversations. And while that one minute walk to a private room, two and back, you know, two minutes now isn't a lot for a single patient when you're seeing four or five patients an hour, that takes up a lot of time that you could be caring for patients. On top of that, there's just the Jenga or Tetris effect of where can you place people? Where in the hospital, you know, where in our emergency department, can we make up extra beds? Can we put people that are safe for the patient, that are private, that um, still allow them to be monitored and still allow them to receive the oxygen or the medications that they need? And then you add on top of that nurses, respiratory therapists, techs, registration, physicians, you know, do we have the personnel to be able to see these patients? And I'm lucky in that where we work, we do, but it's, it's still a lot. It still means we're bumping up our numbers a little bit and, you know, we're double checking things to make sure that everything goes smoothly for our patients, but it certainly leaves a lot to be desired on both the patient end and the physician end. Yeah. I mean, the, the challenges associated with just kind of figuring out where to put people with these increased patient volumes and a lot of sicker patients has been, I think, a huge challenge for hospitals and medical providers all over the world. 
there's another great point that you brought up about evidence-based medicine. And when we say evidence-based medicine, we mean treatments and diagnostics that have been evaluated using this sort of structure of medical research. And we accept certain treatments and certain diagnostic tests and vaccines based on these sort of strict standards of procedures. And I think there's been a lot of remedies, like you mentioned, that have been touted as, oh, this is the next thing that's going to cure COVID. And unfortunately, a lot of these treatments haven't been vetted properly through our rigorous medical research system. And likewise, I've also heard a lot of people talk about the vaccine and say, oh, it's untested, which it's not. It's actually been tested pretty rigorously. So I really, I want to thank you for bringing that up. And I know medical education and talking to clinicians about how to read these studies and determine what treatments are effective and what treatments are not effective is a huge part of what you do. So I was wondering if you want to talk a little bit more about kind of how you decide what treatments are acceptable or not and the choices that you made to get the vaccine. Yeah. So I think one of the things that's probably been the hardest for the general public with this pandemic, I mean, there's a lot of things that have been hard, but I think one of the things that is hard is that we are living and breathing the scientific method right now. And what I mean by that is we've seen coronavirus for years. It's one of the common cold viruses. I mean, most of us have probably had some variant of corona every year since we were an infant. But this new variation, this COVID-19 variation is just so new and so different. And to have medical experts come out and say one thing one week and then come out and say something else the next week, I imagine that is really confusing for the general public that maybe hasn't had years of scientific education. Um, and so when I say we're living and breathing the scientific experiment, what I mean is we are constantly creating new hypotheses. We're constantly testing something new and finding new information. And sometimes that information is positive and something works well. And sometimes that information is that whatever we were looking at doesn't work. And so for the general public, you know, in the beginning, there was this question about like, do masks work? And initially quite a few resources said, you don't need to wear a mask. And I think part of the reason why they were saying that was because we needed PPE in the hospitals for the people that were going to be in direct contact with COVID patients. And with lockdown, people were going to be home. And if you're home and you're working from home and you're not going anywhere, you probably don't need a mask. But then just a few short weeks later, it was make cloth masks. Everybody should be wearing a mask. For the general public, that has to be really confusing to have your medical expert constantly changing what they're recommending probably feels like they're changing their mind and they don't really know what they're doing. When the reality is that we are testing a hypothesis and finding new information and changing based on that. So it's been hard because there have been a lot of medications. You know, hydroxychloroquine is probably one of the most uh, flashy uh, controversies that has gone on. Azithromycin or a Z-Pak, an antibiotic, has been one of the other ones. And, you know, I think a lot of us were really hoping that both of those would help, but didn't really see a, uh, a pharmacological or physiological reason why they would. So I think some of us were pretty skeptical. The research was done. There were multiple locations that did trials where they gave patients the medication to see if there was a change in their morbidity or their mortality or their length of course um, of the illness of their post-COVID symptoms. 
And unfortunately, they just didn't look like they were making a difference. And in some cases, were actually harming the patient. And so as a physician, I really look to the literature and I look to the people who have completed these studies and written these studies up. In our emergency department, for example, we are a training program. So we train people who have graduated from medical school to become emergency medicine specialists, to become critical care specialists. And so we meet once a month to review literature and to, um, for lack of a better phrase, kind of tear it apart and look at what was done well and look at what was done poorly and to decide whether or not we think we need to change our practice or we need to do something based on these new studies that are coming out. In med school, medical students have a biostats course where they learn about the different types of studies that you can do, double-blinded studies, meta-analysis, prospective or retrospective cohort studies. They learn which ones are really the good studies that you want to look at, and they learn which ones are really the studies that maybe aren't so awesome and kind of need to be repeated on a larger scale to get good information. And so once a month, we meet as a group and we review some of the studies. And we did that with the COVID studies. We did that to talk about hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin and everybody's standard of practice and what we were doing. And the recommendations have changed, again, because we're living and breathing the scientific method. We have new research that's coming out that is helping us figure these things out each week. And so ultimately, you really have to rely on that primary source, that initial research, and really look at the stats and look at the outcomes to decide whether or not you're going to implement something in your practice. Um, And you have to look at the potential for harm to the patient as well. So some medications are more tolerated and really don't have a lot of side effects. And some medications are not as well tolerated and can have very concerning side effects. And so you have to weigh that as well. Ultimately, I look to the experts. I understand biostats. I can read an article, but there are people out there that are smarter than me in that realm. And I did that when looking at the vaccine and whether or not I was going to get the vaccine myself or whether or not I was going to recommend it to my friends and my family. I looked to some vaccine experts. I looked to some virology experts. I looked at the data coming out of both Pfizer and Moderna to determine whether or not I really thought the benefit was worth the risk. Ultimately, the risk for these vaccines is really, really small. And the benefit is huge. They both had large quantities of patients that were involved in these trials. They both had minimal side effects um, and minimal side effects that really concerned me. I'm okay with a couple days of fever, a couple days of body aches, if it means that I ultimately won't have as terrible of a COVID course, or I might not even have a COVID course if I get exposed, or I might not be able to pass COVID on to family members or loved ones or friends. Um, And so ultimately I looked for the studies. I looked at people who were smarter than me that had a little bit more education in this and relied on their expert opinions. Ultimately, I did get the vaccine. Um, My first, I got the Pfizer vaccine. My first vaccination day was a glorious day. I went with two of my best friends. We got vaccinated together. We took pictures. Um, We all felt a little bit of relief. I had no symptoms, tolerated it perfectly fine. A couple weeks later, went back, got my second Pfizer vaccine. Again, went with two of my absolute best friends. We got vaccinated together. We took pictures. Um, We were all very excited. I went home, felt perfectly fine for 24 hours. Um, Around hour like 24, though, I had a little bit of body aches. I never had a fever. I had some chills and felt a little cold. Uh, But the reality was it was maybe a three out of a 10. 
Uh, I think I complained more out of the fun of getting to complain that I had chills and had some body aches from getting this glorious vaccine and <laughs> feeling a lot more hopeful about things. Uh, within six hours of my symptoms starting, I was back to my completely normal self. I never took any ibuprofen or Tylenol or anything. I kind of enjoyed my chills and my body aches and the uh, very happy feeling that I got knowing that the vaccine was working and that I was just a little bit more protected. Yeah, I'm so with you there. I think the day that I got my first vaccine, I was so excited just to know that I would have that extra safety when I was in the hospital especially as a new mom and not wanting to bring anything home to my little baby, it just gave me such a sense of relief. And like you, I had minimal side effects after the first one. Like my arm hurt maybe a teeny little bit at the side of the injection, but honestly, it probably hurt even less than a flu shot or a tetanus shot. And then after I got my second one, I did end up having like a little body aches, some chills, and I did end up taking some ibuprofen. But it was... So worth it, I think, just to have the peace of mind and to know that, you know, I was doing more of my part to help protect all of us and kind of get us back to the old normal. Yeah, the sense of relief was huge. It, yes, absolutely. It was after the second vaccine. <laughs> I can't even describe. Yeah, I mean, just knowing that I had that protection is, like you said, I mean, there's no other way to describe it other than just a huge sense of relief and a burden lifted off my shoulders. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've brought up so many incredible points, and I hope that this really has helped answer some of the questions that people might have. A lot of the things that we discussed today are some of those questions that I've gotten over and over and over from people. So thank you so much for sharing your perspective. Of course, more than happy to. As you said, I think it's really important that, that those that are not actively in the hospital or actively in patient care settings right now get reliable, good information from people who are it's just, it's been an interesting year and I'm incredibly grateful for the support of people. I'm incredibly grateful for the support of my institution, the support of my, my family and my husband. And, you know, we're, we're so close. I think, I really think we're so close to starting to be able to go back to a little bit more normal life, just trying to hang on a little bit longer. Yeah. I think we all feel that hope and are so excited for what the next year will hopefully bring, which is fewer COVID cases. Here's hoping. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and thank all of you listeners for tuning into the Emergency Docs podcast. We haven't officially started our new season, but we did want to release this episode right away given the timeliness of the topic. So please subscribe so you never miss an episode when we do start our new season. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. We'd love to hear from you, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us on our website at theemergencydocs.com or Instagram at theemergencydocs. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.